So we have made it to the fourth foundation of mindfulness. <clears throat> we went through mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tone or vedana, and mindfulness of mind states. And today we do mindfulness of dhammas. Mindfulness of Dhammas is all about the question, how? And Gil prepared us beautifully with a guided meditation this morning. So with mindfulness of Dhammas, we're trying to discover the processes of mind. So as a way to describe mindfulness of Dhammas, uh, Gil mentioned yesterday this image of the magician the magician performing a trick. It's as if we want to find out how did this trick come about? How did this sloth and torpor come about in my mind? What happened that I didn't see? Just like the magician distracts us over here while he does something over there, so it happens for us too. And these states arise. So this is all about what we call the causes and conditions, you know, investigating the conditionality of our mind states. Now within this fourth uh, foundation of uh, dhammas, we have several lists. And it's enough to say that um, these lists, all of them, in essence, what, they're, uh, what they are all about are states or qualities that either bind us or free us. So I will focus for this talk on the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. Just briefly, the, we can say that the five hindrances is what keeps us trapped trapped in ignorance, they hinder our progress on the path. And the seven factors of awakening lead us to clarity, lead us towards freedom. So at the most basic with the hindrances, we begin by noticing their presence or their absence. If there is a presence of a hindrance, we become aware how they express in various intensities. And with some of you in the practice discussions, we talked that when they express at a weaker level, just bringing mindfulness is enough and they kind of dissolve but there are others that have much deeper, other times, much deeper roots. And there we then go further to uh, investigate. Now, the way we investigate, how we, uh, here again, the how, how we investigate is important. And I really like the uh, suggestion that, that Bhikkhu Analyu makes. He says, investigate like a chess player. So you kind of sit back and you're looking at the 
chessboard and say, now, how did I get to this place? How is it that now my queen is in danger? Now, let me see. Now, notice that in order for you to figure out how you got to that place, you have to have really good sati. No? Sati in the, in, the, in the meaning of memory, because we know that sati, one of the meanings of sati is memory. So, if I've been truly awake, mindful, as I've been playing this chess game, I will be able to remember, to reconstruct how I got there. And then, of course, we get to be much better chess players by remembering the same thing with our life, the same thing with our experience. But what I really like about this analogy of the chess player is that it has something playful. Some of us have quite a heavy duty uh, association with the word investigation. We immediately clamp up and think we have to just be totally thorough and totally perfect and can't miss anything. And then the body contracts and, you know, that that's not really the point. So, so remember, it's the, the playfulness is, 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 a, is a wonderful aspect to keep in mind. So, in essence, we're, we're asking, how did it arise, any of these mind states? How can they be removed or overcome? And how we, can we prevent them in the case of, let's say, the, the hindrances, that they don't recur? So now we go just through the, the five hindrances, but this time through uh, the uh, how. We talked the first um, time I mentioned in relation to the posture, but this time we're going to look at it through the lens of the, the conditionality. So how did they arise? I don't know if you've heard Gill say that instead of being called human beings, we should be called desirelings because we have so many desires all the time. So we get plenty of opportunity to investigate how did this arise? You know? For example, you're sitting in the hall and you open your eyes and in front of you, you just see this really gorgeous zafu, beautiful color, beautiful cloth, and you say, now that's a zafu, I want that. <coughs> so there, the desire arose through the sense door of the eye, the object, and the zafu, and now the essential desire is there. Sometimes it's a little bit harder to reconstruct this, how did I get to this stage? But again, if we have been mindful through whatever we're doing, it'll be easier to reconstruct how we got, or how is it that this arose? So one way of um, beginning to work on how to overcome these many, many essential desires that come in through any of the six sense doors are <clears throat> to just become aware of their impermanence and how brief 
they can last this 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 hits of pleasure that that we get it was quite charming uh, a few years ago at IMS I, I we were sitting at the uh, teacher's dining room and I happened to be sitting in front of Joseph Goldstein and there was this delicious chocolate cake that was given to the teachers as a present and Joseph very mindfully took a, a forkful of the chocolate cake, put it in his mouth, and he said, tasting, 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 gone. He took another one. Tasting, 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 gone. And it was wonderful because it just really brought to, uh, to awareness how quickly these pleasures just, they are here and they're gone. And then how long does it last, you know, if, if it really wasn't good for us? I don't need to describe, right? If, it, if, if that's not the right thing for us to eat, that lasts a lot longer. So it's, it's uh, very helpful just to remind us of uh, this, the, how these pleasures last. Such a brief moment. They're, they're short-lived and that in the end, they are really unsatisfactory. Very helpful to notice. It's like the enchantment is broken when we notice, oh, you know, it's not that satisfying, actually. So uh, another way of how we can practice when we are meditating I, I, some of you heard the because uh, somebody asked of how how to work with with an itch, and that's a that's a very wonderful way to work with something very simple, just the desire to scratch, because because that's that's I think at the at the level that we all of us can handle the intensity of the challenge, and and just watch it arise. The first time I did that exercise, I found it so interesting that I would. I would say itching, itching, and I would visualize a hand that would go to scratch, but I wouldn't move, itching, itching, and the hand, again, the visualization, the hand that wanted to go to, to scratch. So uh, it just, just that alone, it's, it's, it's so revealing, you know, how, how immediately it becomes one, it just merges this uh, immediate response. But, you know, we can just watch it, it's there, and then it's gone. So just watching it, not acting, and watching it pass away. And then um, another, another uh, useful way of working with them is, can we invest our energy and be aware of them instead of meeting them. That changes things very, very much. Helpful also is if we just set the intention to, to restrain the sense doors. It's like how much stimulus are we giving ourselves? I can retreat. This, we can see that very, very clearly how beautiful it is when when we practice restraint now that doesn't mean 
that we completely avoid the 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 stimulus uh, uh, because we have to function in the world, right? So we will be uh, bombarded with all kinds of sights and sounds and smells and touches, but can we remain somehow steady with this bombardment of stimulus through the six sense doors? So going on with anger, the, sec uh, the second hindrance, and we did sensual desire, the first one, the second, anger or ill will. How is it that it arises? And I would say most often is a contraction of the self from feeling that something that happened uh, is that our sense of self is being wronged. I like very much that in the suttas, the, the sense of self, that we are encouraged to visualize it like a swinging door. The way I visualize it is like, those Japanese cloth hangings that you put in the frame of the door. So you walk by and, and you, can, you, just, you can walk by with your head and touch them and then just go. And you don't hurt yourself, right? So imagine the sense of self being that way. So uh, something comes that doesn't sit well with us, that it feels a little bit like an aggression. And, and if there's nothing solid, It'll just swing like those flopping cloths in the, in the frame of the door. But if there is something hard, it will hit us and it will be very upsetting and we will be angry and it will feel very solid in our bodies for quite a while, unfortunately. It takes a while once, once the body gets, get, becomes part of the anger to work through, to get stability again, to find balance again. We want to work with metta as an antidote for anger. It's a very powerful antidote. So sloth and torpor, the third hindrance. Here we need to, <clears throat> as I'm sure a lot of you have been doing a lot of this in this, discerning between being tired and and feeling lazy. Now, being tired is connected with the body and being lazy a lot of, it's more with the mind. So here I think for how how do we work with with this one? Um, For this one, it, it, for all of them, but for, particularly for sloth and torpor, for me, it, it's helpful to remind myself of the of the Pali word for hindrance, which means nivarana, which I mentioned to some of you in the practice discussions. In nivarana, the meaning, one of the meanings, is to cover up. So, what is the sloth and torpor covering up? What's underneath? And so often when we begin to look underneath sloth and torpor, we find that we're trying to avoid something. Something difficult comes up in our meditation. It's like, oh, I'm so tired. I, I don't want any more. 
And that's just the mind of not, it's not wanting to look at something. Or sometimes it's suppressed anger. Or uh, a feeling of overwhelm. Or that we have lost the sense of meaning or inspiration. <clears throat> All of this can live underneath the sense of sloth and torpor. So how do we work with sloth and torpor? If we have tasted the, the, the subtle joy that we feel from being in the present, then I think most of us will be willing to make an effort to connect again with that well-being. And then just go through some of the uh, techniques that we've been uh, told several times, like getting up, opening your eyes, making the inhalation longer. I also find um, when I hear inspiring teachings, that brings up energy. A more um, potent uh, medicine that maybe some of you can try, but you know, just for whoever feels they want to try it, is just to remember our mortality. It can really wake you up if you're starting to feel really kind of sluggish. It's like, oh, this could be my last breath. So restlessness and worry. With restlessness and worry, uh, we have the opposite of sloth and torpor, right? With sloth and torpor, we, we don't access energy. With restlessness and worry, we have too much energy, but it's very unproductive energy. We tend to be very pushy and over-effort in our practice when restlessness and worry is present uh, and it also brings up more this, so they kind of feed from each other if we have this pushy uh, approach. Now here again, as, as I mentioned before with anger, um, how solid a sense of self we have is going to be uh, very, very def defining if if restlessness and worry takes hold of us. And I'll <clears throat> tell you the, it's a very personal example that, that, that for me has been very helpful. Um, I grew up on watching with my grandfather on Sundays, the bullfights. Now, let me tell you, I know it's a very horrible practice. It's terrible for the animals and I feel it's terrible for the bulls, but Anyway, it's part of the culture, and I would sit on my grandfather's lap and watch the bullfights. Now, if you, if you can visualize the Toreador with his beautiful red cape, and they're always dressed in a very 
elegant way. They hold the, the cape and the bull comes running and, well, the, he holds the cape here, but when the bull comes, he moves it to the side and then in a very elegant way, he twists his, his torso and everybody screams, ole! Okay, so ole means the, the hit to something solid was evaded. That's what I, that, what I tell myself to bring a little bit of lightness when one of these um, thoughts arise that feed restlessness and worry. I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not da 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 da. So anything, anything that really makes us contract and become worry and become restless. So can we just move aside and say, ole, and there's nothing, nothing hard to catch on. It's like, oh, just the thought, nothing there. Just like the bull went through the red cloth, that, that idea that, that wants to make my mind contract also goes through. And the last one, doubt. How does doubt come up? Doubt will come up either, for me, it's often when I'm tired and there's no clarity in the mind. Then it's very easy and then just the mind goes this way and that way. Da, da. Then the, when I can't make a decision anymore, I know I'm just too tired, there's no clarity, it's just go to sleep. It can also be a sense of overwhelm, a lack of confidence, And here, uh, one, we can work with doubt in a way that um, when the doubt arises and we're meditating and you have a doubt about something in the practice and usually becomes something very uh, brainy and then we go off and start thinking. So can we notice and then just say, okay, it's very important. It's very interesting point. I really want to figure it out. But is it this or is it that? Okay, then make yourself, promise yourself, you're going to take some time after the retreat and you're not going to read on it. But take a note and then really do it. So that when next time you have this, oh, I need to figure this out and what is it this or is it that during the meditation that you really... Uh, Trust yourself that, yeah, you're going you're gonna to take care of it later. You're going to follow through. So at this time in the retreat, after five days, I hope that most of you have had quite a few moments where you sense the cessation of these five hindrances. It's a very, very beautiful feeling of relief, of lightness. Now, also I'm sure you have noticed that these are just moments. We 
have freedom from the hindrances just on the surface of the mind. The roots of the hindrances, however, unfortunately, remain. And those are not going to be uprooted until we're fully liberated. However, we can take joy in the sense of this temporary abeyance of the hindrances. So, <clears throat> as a way to move towards the seven factors of awakening, let us look of how is it that in the discourses is described when we are free of the hindrances. There are two sets of similes that the suttas offer us that are very, very graphic. And that is that when we're free of the hindrances, the mind will be crystal clear, like still clean water. That if you were to bend over a bowl with crystal clear water, you would see your reflection without any difficulty. However, if there is a central desire, then we wouldn't see the, 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 the reflection because the water would be colored. So, but let's, let's word them as if they were free of. So, um, the, we would, the, the boiling water, so the, the water is boiling and because there's ill will. So, we're free, it's not boiling. It's, or it's described as um, sloth and torpor. It's overgrown by algae. Again, there, um, we, we would not be able to see our reflection. The algae is gone, we can see it. Or tossed around by the winds of restlessness and worry. You know, the surface of the water would be very agitated or muddied by doubt. Again, so those would not allow us to see our reflection. And the second set, set of similes is, uh, describes it in, in, in a different way. It said, being free from anger or ill will is like having recovered from disease. You know, if you can remind, remember uh, having been ill for a while and then how it feels to be able to get up for the first time, to bathe, to put clean clothes, to finally eat the regular food, to go outside. There's such a sense of relief. Being free from sloth and torpor is like having been released from prison. So the sense of confinement, of heaviness is gone. Being free from restlessness or worry is like having been released from slavery. See the sense of being free of captivity. Um, the captivity could be again these stories that we, we tell ourselves. Being free from doubt is like having completed a dangerous journey.
So all of these similes point to this sense of this relief, this the sense of well-being, of joy when the hindrances are gone. And joy connects us with the seven factors of awakening because joy is one of the factors. So the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening as lists are often paired in the discourses, but they're opposites, right? One, one of it, as I mentioned at the beginning, one of them traps us, the other one frees us. The seven factors of awakening are described as jewels, We may say that these jewels are the true adornment of ourselves, the true adornment, make, making our minds and hearts beautiful. They make us beautiful regardless of the exterior appearances. In the discourses, people who cultivate the seven factors of awakening are described as wise, alert, emancipated, and noble. And the ones who don't cultivate the seven factors of awakening are described as unwise dolts. <laughs> so, as with the five hindrances, the instructions for working with the seven factors of awakening is to ask us, are they present or not? If not present, know the conditions, how to make it make it or them arise, and if they're present, know how can they be developed. I'll read you a quote from the Samyutta Nikaya. Practitioners, these seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, are noble and emancipating. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. So the first factor of awakening, we've talked already quite a bit, is mindfulness, sati. Joseph Goldstein likes to say that we need to prime the pump of mindfulness when we're going to further the seven factors of awakening. It's very important without, without really going, get, getting mindfulness going, uh, we're not going to have much of success cultivating the rest of the, of the factors. So Bikwanalyo uses an acronym of SAP, S-A-P, to describe the, the, the mindfulness uh, as, as a factor of awakening. And the S is for soft, open, and receptive, the A for awake, you know, that nuanced reception of the present moment, internalizing and incorporating experience and recalling viv vividly and with ease. And the P for presence, aware at the six sense doors. 
You know, so, so being aware as you go around what, what comes in through the sense door of the eye, the nose, the mouth, the ears, touch and mind. So this protects us, this, this having awareness at the, at the six sense doors protects us and gives us that stability of that post that I mentioned in, in my other talk. So as a way of investigating how we cultivate mindfulness, I'd like to just drop a few questions and for you to right now consider. So if you just want to close your eyes and just give yourself some time to take the question in and with a very open, soft quality, just know, see how is it that you would answer these questions. What supports for you the quality of awareness or attending? What gets in the way? How do you experience the awareness that knows? How do you differentiate awareness from thinking? So thank you. Now going on. With these questions, we have taken in what has come through mindfulness. We've, we were aware, well, hopefully you were aware as these questions were coming, and you investigated. And that's the, the second factor of awakening. And so you see how natural it is for um, investigation to arise when there is mindfulness. So this, because mindfulness awakens in us this inquisitiveness and curiosity about mind states. So as we are aware of the present moment, we naturally investigate 
the reality. So we can say that mindfulness is both the prerequisite to investigation and the incentive to investigate. Now, the purpose of this investigation is that we want to scrutinize the mind states that are wholesome and the ones that are unwholesome. So investigating gives rise to increased engagement with a whole process of practice. And this engagement brings up naturally energy. And that's the next factor of awakening. Energy is the third one. I had I had an ex- experience that uh, brought this to mind very clearly um, a few years ago at the three-month retreat at IMS at, in a meditation. I was just you know, one of those meditations where you just feel so sluggish and I just could not bring up the energy. So I stood. And as I was standing, it just so happens that as, as a ray of sun hit the eyelids, my eyes were closed. And then it was so amazing to see this play of light, this constant moving, shifting, changing. And so the mind had an anchor, became interested in in the impermanence of this, of this light, dark, light, dark movement. And I could just feel from that paying attention, how the energy arose. And then after the energy arose, there was this sense of, ah, well-being. So uh, we can say well-being or joy that is the next, the next uh, factor. And we can be uh, sure that if the the joy that arose through this sequence of steps is the unworldly type of joy. So this is not the, the, the joy that we might feel from seeing, ooh, goody, we have biscotti for, for dessert. That would be the worldly type. But the other one, it, it, it arose from within, from uh, through this um, steps of mindfulness, of investigation, of energy and joy. So, <clears throat> we will notice as we practice uh, with the, the factors of awakening that after we've primed the pump of mindfulness and we proceed to the energizing factors of investigation, energy, and joy, that we have arisen some... These are the factors that arise, that make the energy go up, that increase the, the energy. 
And then from there we go to tranquility, so joy leads to tranquility. It's, it's as if joy, pity is a kind of like a bubbly happiness. And the next factor is a much more refined kind of happiness. It's a very tranquil happiness. So as joy becomes strong, the body is at ease and the mind is calm. And that is how tranquility arises. Now, as we get more relaxed and tranquil, then concentration arises naturally. So with concentration, we have this sense when we've experienced concentration that there is a, a gathering, our collecting of our whole experience around a center. However, uh, we want to notice that although there is this collectedness and a focus, the focus doesn't necessarily have to be narrow. The focus in concentration sometimes can also be wide. So as concentration strengthens, then all factors balance and we embody equanimity or equipoise. And that's the last one. Equanimity or equipoise. So equanimity is about a refined balance of the mind free from desires, free from discontent. Bikwanalyo likes to use equipoise. Um, sometimes we use uh, equanimity just being aware, equanimity has more of a mental quality. It's mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper. Equipoise is more physical. You know, there's a balance of forces or equal distribution of weight. So you can kind of check for yourself which one feels more appropriate for you. So with equanimity, we arrive to the end of the seven factors of awakening. And as we see, you know, they have a very natural progression. They arise one from the, the previous one very naturally. And one thing that, that we are encouraged to do is to watch if at some point when we are going through the factors of awakening, if either one needs balancing. We can never have too much mindfulness, but uh, sometimes one of the factors can get a little bit out of balance. You know, maybe too much joy. Then, then we need to balance the ones that are tranquilizing with the group that, that are energizing. You know? 
So the energizing factors are investigation, energy, joy, and the tranquilizing factors are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So to end, I want to uh, read a passage of um, the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses. This is just one way of describing the seven factors of awakening. So I will read it and then just briefly uh, just talk about how I interpret the passage. Practitioners, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too when a practitioner develops and cultivates the seven factors of awakening, one slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. And how is this so? Here a practitioner develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. One develops the enlightenment factor of investigation, and then it goes through energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, which is based upon seclusion, seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing and release. It is in this way that a practitioner develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment so that one slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. So I see the inclining as a... Uh, is referring to an intention, you know, so aligning ourselves towards finding freedom. This slanting is or inclining is a is a lovely image because it's there's nothing there's there's nothing of attachment of I have to and it, but it's more like like an invitation like um, of aligning our life towards finding freedom. And just as with a house, everything that supports this being is aligned towards the same purpose of finding freedom. So we're told what qualities to develop to be able to incline the mind towards liberation. And each factor of awakening is based on the practices of seclusion, dispassion, and cessation that mature in release. Now seclusion we can interpret as a physical seclusion. You know, often the suttas talk about going off into the forest and, and, and being away from the noise and the busyness of our life. But there's also one that's even more important, and that's the mental seclusion. And a mental seclusion means that we are able to seclude ourselves from the unwholesome mind states. 
So I find that a very, um, a, a very wonderful way of wording it, seclusion from the unwholesome states primarily of the five hindrances. So this is really very powerful because we might find ourselves in a place that is like a sordid environment, and yet inwardly we are secluded secluded from the unwholesome states. So now the dispassion, what is meant with the dispassion? Well, dis and passion, so without, without passion. Here we're invited to realize that, uh, recognize that passion is a form of dukkha, is like a fire that burns us. So with this discovery comes with a more refined sense of knowing. And the cessation refers to the end of dukkha. And maturing and release is all about our efforts from moment to moment throughout our life pointing, leading us to freedom. So let's take some moments to close our eyes. I'm just letting all the words settle. May we cultivate the seven factors of awakening so that we slant, slope, and incline towards Nibbana. Thank you very much for your attention. <clears throat>